Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to take a look at two new Kickstarters by my friends M.T. Black and Jeff Stevens. We're going to talk about an article that came out talking about what it was like running D&D on death row and it shows how far this game can expand into the furthest corners of our society. I'm going to do a Patreon spotlight for an adventure called Tomb of the Red Headsman, and we're going to cover the remaining questions from the August 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, including the Red Headsman adventure that we're going to talk about, but also exclusive adventures, the, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, Patreon Q&A, and the dedicated Discord server, and a whole lot more. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. We seem to be right in the middle of people running lots of Kickstarters. We've I've been covering many Kickstarters over the show, and we have two by two friends of mine, two people, two designers that I greatly respect, the first of which is Old Town Saga by M.T. Black. M.T. Black has been really a tremendous, prolific author of small RPG products and small adventures, and he is doing so again with a book called Old Town Saga. This is an adventure in which the characters are matching wits with a notorious, elusive criminal. So it looks, looks really interesting. This falls into and is part of Empty Black's Hall, Iskandar uh, world is Kandar setting. He has a fantastic is Kandar campaign guide, which you can pick up. You can pick it up as part of this Kickstarter. It's also available on drive RPG. All of his products are very reasonably priced. And there's an is Kandar player's handbook, which is a full 5e player's handbook because it includes the entire SRD of uh, 5e in it as well. 572 pages that includes an entire campaign guide that you need to run this game. So it's actually a full system on its own it's standard 5e so of course you can use your player's handbooks and all of the other 5e remaining all of your 5e content but it's its full system as well and i think it was like i think it's the cheapest one other than the fact that the srd is free it's like three dollars or something for like a player's handbook it's really it's really great but is kandar is really really cool stuff and i am always eager to see the adventures he's putting out these small small focused adventures it's six dollar the pdf is six bucks on Kickstarter. Very cheap to get the PDF. You can get the physical book, which I guess you're actually going to have shipped to you. You get all the above plus a physical copy. So this isn't, you are actually paying for the print copy as well. I think that seems cheap for 11 bucks. So it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if actually what you're getting is a print on demand, uh, a print on demand version. And then there's a, or print on demand rights to get it printed at print on demand. You're probably paying for shipping on top of it, but 11 bucks is pretty cheap. And then there is the digital bundle, which has all of his stuff. So if you're the first time you ever heard N.T. Black and his work and you want to get everything that he's got, you get a tremendous 10, 10 different PDFs for 40 bucks. A very, very good price for a lot of products. Look, look at all the stuff you get for 25, you know, how is this? Oh yeah. $26 US, $39 Australian. So it's actually $25 for 11 different products, 1400 pages of stuff. That's it's a good deal. Like that, that's almost like he's got a bundle of holding built directly into built into his Kickstarter. So if you're not familiar with the works of Empty Black, really, really good stuff, really good adventures and short focused adventures, really, really fun. I highly recommend them. And this is a great way to get involved in both a new one that he's putting out. And also, if you're brand new to it, you can get into all of his existing existing works as well. So check out Old Town Saga by Empty Black. 
My friend Jeff Stevens, who I worked with, Jeff and myself and Scott Gray put together the Stars Over Stormwreck adventure. I've been talking and working with Jeff. I think I've done some freelance work for Jeff in the past as well. I'm pretty sure I did some freelance work for Jeff in the past. And he has a new product called Weapons of Legend. This is a bigger Kickstarter for a bigger product. The digital reward for this is still only $10. And it is a book full of magic items, a book full of a book full of different magic items that you can drop into your game, including this one. I remember this one. I, I forget who designed it, but we were talking about this one, the mustache bow. So it's a little bow that you can turn into a little horn-ridden mustache and you can take it off and it extends into a bow and then she would put it back as a mustache. Like what's his name? The detective with the little, the little gray cells. There is a preview of this that you can pick up to take a look at the kinds of things that he's got. Yeah, P Perot. That's who I was thinking of. Thank you, Perot. Gangrene hammer that rots you they all have sort of different one thing that's neat is they they have sort of different progression that they have they're not they're not always just your standard run-of-the-mill magic item they they can grow you can have different versions for different tiers here's mustache the bow right this one's this one's probably going to grab everybody right it's a it's a little bow that you can take out yeah so there's common uncommon and rare versions of it and a very rare like a common uncommon rare very rare and legendary so you can be like a plus three bow. In addition, you cast Polymorph on yourself. That's pretty neat. So I would check it out. You can find a link in the show notes. Check out his, check out the free sample. See if it's the kind of stuff that you want. If you're looking for some new fun magic items to drop into your game, magic items like spells and like monsters are one of those things that you can use in lots of different ways in your game. You could just pick one item and drop it in. But those are elements of fifth edition games that don't radically change your game. Unlike sort of subclasses or any new classes or any sort of new front facing features that characters get, you know, spells, you would think, well, that changes characters too, but you only the ones you give out. Like you could say like, hey, this book of spells, I'm only going to drop in these spells that I've picked out. But it's it's a good way. And, and magic items the same way. You can only drop one. You can take a look at it and say, yeah, that looks like a fun item. I'll drop that in. And then you can drop that in. Same with monsters. So I think magic items along with spells and monsters are really great ways to easily expand a fifth edition game from any publisher. It doesn't matter. Like you don't you don't care that much that it's not in D&D Beyond or not because you can kind of add a core, you know, it's pretty easy to add uh, a custom homebrew item into D&D Beyond for the one magic item that you picked up for your character. So it's pretty straightforward. So it looks like a really good product. Very good design. Really cool stuff. Jeff Stevens has published lots and lots of stuff, so he definitely knows what he's doing. So that is the Weapons of Legend Kickstarter by Jeff Stevens. 80 wondrous magic items for 5e. And cheap, 10 bucks. I think 10 bucks for the digital version. There was an article that had been passed around on various forms of social media. My Mastodon feed got it. Some people brought it up on Discord, which is an article called D&D on Death Row. It was available in the New York Times, but there's actually a non-paywalled version through the Marshall Project. I highly recommend reading this article. And the, the, it's, an, it's an article about inmates on death row who figured out how to play Dungeons and Dragons, that that was their, their pastime and their way of sort of connecting with Dungeons and Dragons. It is a very hard article to read. However you feel about incarceration in America or the death penalty and things like that, this is definitely going to tag into all of those, all of those feelings on it. And there's, you know, it's not an easy article to read, but what I found really interesting about it and something that I think we can always think about is just how far this hobby can reach into like literally the darkest corners of our society. Right, the, the areas of our society that we pay the least amount of attention to, where we really are not thinking about the people that are there, 
very dehumanizing situations in general. And yet people still have figured out a way to make this hobby that we love a way for them to escape whatever, whatever situation that they're in. Really interesting article. And I, and I, I, I definitely, I definitely recommend it. And it's, it's something that I think a lot about. I have talked on this show before about the, 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 the resilience of our RPG, the resilience of D and D and how, you know, so many other hobbies that we have could fall away with everything from as small as one publisher buying out another publisher and deciding to no longer publish that game. Not an RPG, but like imagine that whatever your favorite computer game is or whatever your favorite massive online game is or whatever, but, you know, Destiny, right? Destiny is actually pretty popular, but you could have a smaller game that's like Destiny and the company be like, yeah, we don't want to do that anymore. And now you can't play the game anymore. Or you had a game you really loved, but they've never moved it from one console to another. They never moved it from one system to another. Now you don't really have a way to go back and play it. And it's kind of dead, right? The game's kind of dead. You can't really play it. So in some circumstances, it could just be the publisher changes things. It could be that a publisher takes a game and says, oh yeah, we rebalanced something a certain way. And you're like, I hated how that got rebalanced. There was a Star Wars massive online game a long time ago this is a story there's a couple, bunch of massive online game stories i love to tell but one of them was i think it, what was it called the old republic i think it was star wars the old republic and i think i'm getting this right i might be mixing up because there were there were a couple different star wars massive online games star wars galaxies maybe star wars galaxies and one of the things about star wars galaxies is like there was like lots of different things you could do and a bunch of players just wanted to be sand farmers like all they wanted to be is like on tatooine working on their sand farms and then the publishers of the game said you know we want people to be doing actiony stuff like they should be heroes of the galaxy not sand farmers we didn't make a game so that you could farm sand and really what was happening is the sand farmers really liked the game and no one else did and it meant that they were losing customers and thus there wasn't enough money coming in to fund all the development so they said we need to change this whole thing and they shifted everything around and put in a whole new action system and a whole new way to play the game and all the sand farmers were wicked pissed off and basically they didn't bring any new people in because it was kind of an old game and all the people that were there left because they're like ah the sand farming isn't fun anymore and, and the game kind of died. And I don't even know, I, I, I doubt it's still going. I, I think they probably shut it down. And that's one where like, you know, you think about the resilience of an RPG that if you and your friends are playing a game around a table, someone can't come in. Like even though Wizards of the Coast is doing a whole lot of stuff to make the 2024 revision, I guarantee you, I am 99.999% sure there are groups who are going to still play with the 2014 rules because they're going to like them better. A, because they're going to have 2014 player handbooks. They're all over the place. There's 20, I, like I'm making up a number. There's tens of millions of copies of the player's handbook out there. Tens of millions of physical copies of the books. Those books are not going away. They're going to be in libraries. They're going to be in schools. They're going to be in, you know, bargain bins. They're going to be all over the place. They're going to be in everybody's library, not everybody, many, many people's libraries that other people are going to inherit. Those games, those books are going to be around forever. And fifth edition, the 2014 version of fifth edition was the most popular version of fifth edition, of most popular version of D&D ever. And maybe the most popular ever. We don't know how popular the next one's going to be because you can still play the old one. Just because Wizards of the Coast is going and changing things in 2024 doesn't mean the 2014 rules change. It doesn't mean that you have to play with anything. It means you can continue to play with it. So on one side, you have the publisher can't really do that much harm to the old version. And then you go to the real extremes. I talk about like RPGs, physical RPGs can survive a nuclear war. 
There are so few games that can survive a nuclear war, but D&D is one of those. And then you think about this and you're like, D&D is one of the only hobbies and only games that can reach people in death row, you know? And in this case, like they talk about how they played D&D on death row. They don't have dice. They can't use dice. Dice are illegal, right? So they have little spinner cards that they use. And sometimes the spinner cards get, get, get destroyed and you don't really have you have to make a new one you have to make these new things sometimes their stuff gets confiscated they have to start from scratch but so much of this game exists in our imagination that even when they lose their materials even when they can't get access to basic materials to run the game they can still find a way to run a game and that is a really interesting and powerful concept for this game one thing that this really fired up and my, my wife and i talked about we are in no position to be able to help with this but one thing i would love to see are, is a group that tries to do outreach to to people in incarceration, you know, to prisoners that are out there, who not necessarily ones that are in death row, although we try to want to help everybody we can. But you know, there's <laughs> the United States is the has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. It'd be really nice if we could figure out a way to give them D and D materials that they could use. I have no idea what that is. It would take somebody who's been in the inside to figure out what kind of materials and how it could be given to them. But I, I, was, I listened to a Planet Money podcast where they talked about a guy who went to jail and while he was in jail, he wrote, I think it was like every day he wrote a new business idea, right? Like his thing was like, I want to start a business when I get out of here. And when he got out, what he, the, the area of business that he found that was really, you know, where he could really offer a, a, a valuable service was in getting pictures to prisoners of family members. And he said, in this case, it was a burden for the family members more than it was a burden for the prisoners because of like super high costs and inconsistency and everything else. And he found and created a service and got venture capital money to set up a service to help family members get photographs of themselves to prisoners so that they could see their families, so that they could see their friends, so that they had some connection to the outside world. And, you know, and the reason he was able to do it is because he knew how the system worked from the inside. He knew what the problems were and he was able to figure it out. It would be really interesting if there were ways to figure out how to help prisoners get more access to RPG materials. I would be very interested. If you know anything about that, if you've, if you've heard of services like that, I'd love to hear about it. You can leave me a comment. You can send me an email. You can let me know some other way. But I just, this article really moved me because it did show how this and again it's a hard read I, I, will, I will warn you it is a hard read but it is a really interesting path it's really interesting to see how this hobby we have can reach so many people in so many different parts of the world in so many different circumstances so i i found it really interesting there is a link to this article it's called when wizards and orcs came to death row it was done in as a joint connection between the new york times and the marshall project the article i'll link to is on the marshall project because it doesn't have a paywall and you can find a link in the show notes one of the things I'd like to do on the talk show is look at different things that are available to Sly Flourish patrons. Again, you can become a patron by following a link in the show notes, patreon.com slash Sly Flourish. You can also find it on the Sly Flourish homepage. But I want to show you the wealth of different stuff that we have available to patrons. And the one thing I would like to show today is an adventure called Tomb of the Red Headsman. This was one of the few times I did not run Ravenloft for Halloween. We were kind of interested in like, well... Let's run something else other than Halloween. It is one of the few adventures that is not part of Ruins of the Grendel Root that is set in Grendel Root. That it is a, a, a further Grendel Root adventure. So if you enjoy your Ruins of the Grendel Root adventures, this is my book of 10 adventures set in an ancient mountain. This is a good 
additional adventure that you can add into your Grendel Root game. It is an adventure for third level characters because I really love third level as a great way to run one-shot games. I think that if you're playing with experienced players and you want to run a one-shot game, third level is the perfect level. They are just powerful enough to have a really interesting depth of characters. You get subclasses, you get access to you know first and second level spells. Characters feel really enabled at third level, but they're not so powerful that they're just blowing everything away and you have to write entire adventures around all the weird capabilities that they have. It's still pretty easy to challenge third level characters, but also they have a lot of ideals. So I really feel that, I really feel that third level is a fantastic level for running one shots. You'll find that I've written a lot of adventures around, around third level. So very straightforward and much like the other Grendel Root adventures, it begins in Deep Delver's Enclave, which is this really nice, happy location where adventurers and explorers have built a really fun society that's in the middle of this mountain that's filled with all this adventurous stuff. And there's usually some kind of party going on there. Whenever you go there, there's some kind of party going on there. In this case, there's like a music and party and people are talking about the legend of the, the legend of the Red Headsman, right? And they're doing all this stuff. And then it turns out somebody comes in and goes, oh my God. My friend got his head cut off by the, the, the tomb of the Red Headsman, by the he- Red Headsman. And then the character's got to go to figure out what the curse is and go deal with the curse. It's really interesting. So it's a very short adventure, seven pages long, designed to be easily run. If you're familiar with the adventures from Ruiz and the Grendel Root, it follows that style very much. It's a location-based adventure. I'm much a huge fan of location-based adventures where the characters can go and explore. It uses a multi-level Dyson map with like a big hole in the center so you can kind of go and explore all your different locations and deal with the creatures that are there, but also uncover the secret of the curse of the Red Headsman and at, and then at the same time have lots of fun, have lots of fun adventures. So this is an example of there's about five or six adventures that are like this that patrons get access to. All patrons get access to all of these adventures. So really fun stuff. There, the, the When you download it, you get a VTT version of the map as well. So it's not just the adventure. You get the adventure plus a map that you can drop into a virtual tabletop to run it. So that is an example of the kinds of things that patrons get on the Flourish Patreon. That is Tomb of the Red Headsman, which I think I put out a couple years ago. It's still available. Still fun. Let us carve through the remainder of our August 2023 Patreon Q&A every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons get to ask any RPG-related question that they want to ask. I answer all of them every Friday morning. I cover all of the questions that are currently asked. And then some of those questions make it to shows like this. Sometimes they actually become the catalyst for an article or for a separate video. Ben H. says, I recently ran a couple of Call of Cthulhu sessions and had some struggle applying the Lazy DM prep rules to it. Do you have any tips on preparing for a more investigation-based game? Possibly upping the amount of secrets and clues, maybe reformatting them could help, but any other tips would be appreciated. I'm wired enough around the eight steps from return that if unless an RPG tells me to prep differently, I almost always default to this because most of the, like the, what they call like, the, I've now heard it referred to as trad F20, talk about like nomenclature, which I think is traditional fantasy D20 games. Um, with like D&D or other ones, 13th Age, D&D, Pathfinder, right? I feel like the eight steps can, is, is one model that can work. Different kinds of RPG, there are some RPGs though where they, like you just are intended to prep differently. Dungeon World, you prep differently. Blades in the Dark, you prep differently. And I actually had trouble figuring figuring out exactly how to mesh my mind around the way that Blades in the Dark runs games. I talked previously on, on, on other videos or other shows about how I'm using the eight steps with a game like Shadow Dark, which is what I would refer to as a traditional 
the fantasy d20 game but then you get games like call of cthulhu you get gumshoe games you get games that are based around like heavy investigation your dresden files your knight's black agents games like that which are really different and what i i, I find what you find i don't think it's necessarily that the eight steps can't work or don't fit the model but there's definitely a further reinforcement about what the steps are and how much time you spend on certain steps. The big example is like in investigation games, as much as we have a focus on secrets and clues in even a traditional fantasy D20 game, we also need even more secrets for a game that's investigation based. And that's because most of that game is going to be that investigation. And most of the back and forth between players and the GM are the discovery of those clues. And you don't typically have long rounds of combat where a traditional fantasy D20 game, you're going to spend maybe a third to half to maybe even more of your time running the mechanics of combat, which means you don't need that many secrets because they can only discover so much in a three, four hour session, but they could discover a lot more in a Call of Cthulhu game. Now, some of the other elements though, I think still fit. You still want to have a strong start. You still want to know where the game is going to begin and how you're going to draw the players in the game. That makes sense. Almost any RPG where you have a GM and players, you're going to want to have what's that start. Reviewing the characters, maybe, but a lot of times these games are one shots. And and as I've talked about in other articles and other shows where you don't necessarily need all the eight steps, if you don't know who your characters are, you can't spend time focusing on them. But maybe you can. And if you do, it'd probably still be worth doing. If you were running a Call of Cthulhu game where the characters are consistent between sessions, anytime the characters are consistent between sessions, I think it behooves a GM to spend a little time remembering who the characters are. Because I think in pretty much every role-playing game that has a GM and players the characters are still the focus of the game because those are actual real players sitting around your table. Everything else is just fake. Scenes, maybe, and I think you could definitely follow the scenes in procedural games and investigation games, where they're going to go, who they're going to investigate. Those usually aren't too open-ended. There are usually key breaks between scenes and the scenes help you with that. Secrets and clues we've been talking about. Maybe you want to have more secrets. Absolutely. Maybe you want to group those secrets into different groups so that you have certain secrets they discover around different topics. You could definitely do that. If you have 20 secrets instead of 10, you might want to group those up somehow. Locations are still pretty prevalent. You're going to want to have locations. NPCs are pretty prevalent. You're going to want to have NPCs. Monsters, maybe. And in Call of Cthulhu game, there are definitely monsters. And maybe you want to have an idea who those monsters are. But maybe you're treating them more like NPCs and less like stat blocks. Treasure, again, it could be items or MacGuffins or things like that. It doesn't necessarily need to be loot it could be items that matter and that idea of like the moving MacGuffin what's the item that is key to understanding the game or moving the game forward that might be moving from place to place you might want to spend attention on that the reason why that I've kind of come to those eight steps and again this is by talking to lots of GMs playing lots of games this is coming from lots of different areas this isn't just like I sat down in an empty room and came up with the eight steps I did a lot of study to figure out what the right eight steps were and which ones made the most sense. And it's because the games tend to have those in it. They, they tend to have all of those components in it. And so I think that they still work even when you're running a Call of Cthulhu game. But like you mentioned, you probably want to have more focus on the things that you're going to have to spend more time on in the game, like secrets and clues, like NPCs, maybe your scenes. So this is something when I was reading Robin Laws's book, which I just reviewed on a previous episode, really excellent book. And he talked about the breakdown of mysteries. And one of the things he brought about 
brought up about mysteries is that you're sort of prepping two layers of events. You're prepping whatever events occurred in the past that the characters are going to discover, along with prepping the path that the characters are going to take to find that discovery. And so if you're running a mystery, and a lot of Call of Cthulhu games are kind of like mysteries, right? Gumshoe games and percentile under investigative games. A lot of them are kind of mystery based and you kind of want to have a layout and a, a history of what happened in the past. So maybe your scenes are broken up into two groups, past scenes that have already occurred, which then kind of lead to the secrets and clues of what's occurred in the past and present scenes and future scenes. What are the things that are going to happen as the characters are investigating it? So that might take more work. And if you're running mystery games like that, you're going to probably want to spend more time on that kind of stuff because the big difference is giant 45 to hour and 30 minute battles that take place, which burn a lot of time, which means you don't have to have a lot of the other stuff because you're running a lot of fights. So that's definitely something to consider. So Ben, I hope that helps. I, and, and the reason I moved this question forward is because I really felt like how you use the eight steps with other systems is a, a big question. Not, not a lot of us are running other systems. I'm running other systems. Josh H says, how do you create incentives to have your players move around the battlefield? I find my players run up to an enemy and stay put, even if there's a different or worse threat because they're afraid of opportunity attacks. I don't want to punish my players by staying still, but I find that a lack of movement is making the combat less interesting. A couple ways. One is... Have your monsters provoke opportunity attacks. Players love to get opportunity attacks. They love, they love to attack with, get, get opportunity attacks. So whenever you have opportunities for monsters to move around, to kind of shift things up, the monster goes up and gets attacked by your fighter, but then it wants to run around the fighter and go attack the wizard, have them do it. So now the fighter is free. Have your monsters to make opportunity attacks and that frees up the characters who might be locked in to not be locked in anymore. Now they can move around too. So that's one easy one. Have your, you know, provoke opportunity attacks. As a GM, provoke. It's a really great way to make your players feel good. Here's a dirty trick. If you have a player who dipped into wizard and has shield, get them to provoke opportunity attacks because then they can't cast shield later, right? They burn their reaction up. That's the mean way. The nice way is just do it because it's fun because players love to make opportunity attacks. They love to attack. They love to kill dudes. If you got a guy who's got a lot of hit points and he runs and they kill him with an opportunity attack, oh, it's joyous. Great way. You want to make your players feel good? Provoke opportunity attacks. But then there's other things you can do and you have to think about the risk reward. What are things that the players could be doing other than fighting whoever they're fighting to move around the battlefield are there advantageous positions where if they can get up there they are safer they have cover and maybe they have advantage on everybody else i'm a big fan of like the high the high ground that if you can go climb up that high cliff and you can shoot from above you have advantage on all the targets below you it's pretty powerful but like it's a nice thing and especially if you make it hard for them to get up there maybe it takes two actions to get up there or a move and a dash to get up there and they have to roll a check and succeed at the check to get up there then it's probably worth having advantage for the rest of the game while they're getting range attacks and then they have cover because they're they're harder to hit because they're up high so i think that that that's a way to do it like offering those things making it clear that they're there again talk to your players to hey by the way just letting you know if you get up on that high cliff you would have advantage against everybody else while you're up there oh advantage oh fit crit fishing that's pretty great that is a really that you know drawing them in then there's sort of a little bit of like the negative incentive of like oh there's this unholy talisman 
and this unholy effigy that's giving all of the monsters advantage on their attacks. You've got to go destroy it. But the only way to destroy it is to get up there and actually get on it. You can't just do it from range. You have to go and kick it over and smash it and destroy it. That's another way, like drawing them over by powerful monuments that they can go and manipulate. Maybe they can manipulate it and turn it in their favor. Oh, by getting rid of the, if we, if we find this ancient obelisk and we pour holy energy into it instead of unholy energy, now all the monsters have disadvantage on their saving throws against our spells and, and, dis, and we get advantage on spell attack rolls. Something like that. But you want to make sure, like the players always say, yeah, but can I do it from range? You're like, no, you really have to get up there and put your bare hands on it. You're going to have to channel your energy in it directly. You can't do it from range. So that way it gets players moving around. So those would be my, my big options. There's a few different ones. There's other ones too, but I think those are some good ones. One, have your monsters provoke opportunity attacks. Makes your players love you. Your, your players will love their game if they can make lots of opportunity attacks. Give them positions and tell them what they are. Hey, if you get up on that high ground, you'll get advantage on attacks. If you get over to this old location, you'll get this other thing. And then throwing monuments in there that either they can destroy to remove abilities that the enemies have or that they have to because the enemies are a lot more powerful if they don't. Or that they could even turn into their favor by turning it like an un- unholy obelisk into a holy obelisk so then they get to switch the switch the battle in their favor near the end those are a few good ways to get your characters to be more engaged in the environment and not just sit in the doorway fighting the same two guys that they face Dorn says, I see in the Forge of Foes preview that you have a section on decolonizing monster design. So I assume that's something that's been on your and your co-author's mind, and I'd like you to weigh in on the matter. To reduce a complex topic to a short question, how do you keep recurring themes that make fantasy so fascinating, traveling to to strange lands, meeting other cultures, taming the wild frontier, uncovering secrets from lost civilizations, without the colonial undertones that can put off some of your players? That's a really good question. It is something that was very important to us. When we originally came up with Forge of Foes and we were going through all the sections that we wanted to have in this book this was definitely something that all of us said yes this is this is something we we want in the book so we have a chapter chapter called anti-colonial play and the most important thing that i want to get across with this is not only does understanding what these issues are and how can we affect them in our game you know, make us more open to the world around us and recognizing things like bioessentialism or colonialization or these other areas that honestly in the world of tabletop or role-playing games we hadn't been paying attention to for like 40 years and now we're paying more attention to it and for the better. It makes our game better. The games are more fun. The games are more interesting. And there's actually good examples of how this has played out in old games that made those games more interesting. An example was when you actually negotiated with and dealt with an entire society of undead. I think it was in the game Planescape Torment. There's a whole interesting thing there. Another one, a good cheat, like if you want to just like, I don't really get it, but like, oh, you know, what? I don't know how to do this kind of stuff, is take a look at the Eberron source book. The Eberron source book, and a lot of other modern source books too. The Critical Role source books do this as well. The Taldorai Reborn book does this, but Eberron's the one I'm most familiar with. And Eberron took a lot of kind of traditional bioessentialist ideas like all goblins are black-hearted little thieves and all orcs are warmongering jerks and said no goblins actually had an empire that was more powerful and more progressive than the existing human empires that that exist today and the orcs saved the world from the Dalekur. the orc shaman saved the world from the Dalekur centuries ago so there's lots of ideas in eberron that kind of take these sort of traditional bioessentialist ideas that have been kind of accorded D&D for a long time and turn them on their head. And regardless of how you feel about it, it makes the game better. The games are more fun. They're more interesting. There's more things to learn. You're going, wow, that's really neat. So this stuff isn't just to make us better people. 
which is very important, right? And you have a wider view of the world around us and recognizing some of the harm that we've been causing without even thinking about it. But it also makes our games better. That's that's a real key. And that's something we reinforced in this in this idea. So we have this whole chapter that kind of talks about all of these different ones. Colonialism is the idea of like, oh, you know, we're more advanced than everybody else. So we're going to go in and we're going to show you all this vast stuff. And we're just going to raid all of your stuff and stick it in, in, in ours or sell it or destroy it or whatever. You know, one thing is like, Having the society, so what's the, the what's the, the cheat code for that? And the cheat code is, and we have like here, right up front, we kind of say like, you know, what are the what are the things that we can specifically do in our games that make it better? And we have a list right in the first page because it was like, you know, it's a it's a long chapter. We cover a lot of different ideas, and we, again, that we all think are very important. But we wanted this is a practical book. So we offer practical things that you can do. And one is like, don't have monolithic ancestry and cultures. All elves are one way. All dwarves are one way. All orcs are one way. It's so much more interesting when different groups of elves are doing different things. One of the ideas that I, I, I kind of put into my Eberron game, which I liked, is that the drow were not a, phys they weren't physically different than any of the other elves. The drow were about who they followed and what philosophies they followed, which wasn't even necessarily that they were all evil. It was that they followed a different path, that they believed a different thing than the other elves believed. And there's other different kinds of elves that, other, that believes other kinds of things too. So it wasn't like, oh, the drow are the ones that have dark skin and white hair. It was like, no, they can look like every other elf. And all the elves have a wide range of different, of, of, of different skin tones, different hairstyles and everything else. The drow are about who you followed. And I think that you could drop that into pretty much any of your games that involve drow and it works better. It's better than saying that as a species, all drow worship Loth. And instead you could say, no, there is a segment of elves that follow the will of Loth. They call themselves the drow, but they look like every other elf, right? It's not that hard. I know it's a big shift, big difference, but it works. Using ancestries as adjectives, instead of having just gnolls, you have null bandits, you have null cultists, you have you know null ravagers, you have null, you know, not all gnolls. And gnolls are an interesting one because people would say, well, gnolls in traditional 5e, if you look at like the 5e 2014 DMG, that gnolls are actually spawned from the cursed blood of hyenas who ate bad meat that that Yinagu left behind. So they're not, they're fiends, not a species, right? They're they're actually like demons. But then you look at other systems. Midgard, for example, has gnolls that aren't that way. Other RP, other worlds have gnolls that are just a species like any other species. They're not, they're not all one thing. And that means you could have gnolls that are good. So why not have a gnoll hunter who is like, you know, a good guy, right? And then you could have gnolls. You can still have your gnolls, gnoll followers of Yinugu that are a bunch of jerks. It's not saying, oh, not, not, not everybody's still good. All your goblins are not good. All your orcs are not good. It's the same, same problem, right? You have to say, oh, all the elves are great. Why? Why aren't some elves dicks, right? So in the same way, you can still have gnolls that worship Yinugu that are jerks. But maybe once in a while, you have a gnoll that worships, you know, Elesterly, who is a hunter in the woods who helps you out with something. That's the real one. Villainy is a choice, not biological or cultural, right? The reason why they do the things they do is because of choices that they made or groups that they follow or gods that they worship. It's not built into their blood, right? That, that's a common, a common problem. The, the perception that civilization exists as a single viewpoint, that there are settled lands, there are civilized lands and uncivilized lands. The idea that the people that live in yurts and hunt all the time, that they're uncivilized, they're barbaric, they don't have you know, outdoor plumbing, you know, so therefore they're uncivilized. That's a, a trap to avoid. And again, it makes richer cultures when you're doing it otherwise. 
move away from the trope of the heroic characters as the saviors of lesser folk. So this is tricky. It's tricky when you're doing something like a Seven Samurai one, where you have a bunch of villagers that are getting attacked by bandits. And if you watch Seven Samurai, they do a couple interesting things. There is a little bit of like the villagers are sort of dolts and the samurai are the big tough ones. But then every so often you see the villagers and they're conducting like their harvesting rituals or their harvesting songs. And they have this whole sort of approach and the samurai like, wow, we're not part of this. We don't have families. We don't have any of the stuff that they have here. And all this culture that this village, that these villagers have is completely alien to us. We don't have anything like that. So showing what the villagers are good at and better at than everybody else. And that they are just, they can be just as smart and just as powerful what they do. They just don't have a way to handle bandits. And that's why they need you to come help handle their bandits, right? That gets away from the idea that you have heroes and then lesser, lesser folks. Make use of cultural inspiration from reliable sources and aim the centering of other cultures and perspectives from a position of respect. Again, that same sort of idea that you don't make the assumption that, you know, that society comes from one single viewpoint and that many times the oppressed have just as rich a society as the oppressors do. And then you see the things like the, you know, avoiding the white savior. And you, you can see like the white savior idea in lots of different things of like, oh, here's this, you know, band of people that were living their own lives, but only until Kevin Costner came around were they all better off, right? Or, you know, dances with blue people like Avatar, like, oh, thank God the humans came to save our, 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 you know, our blue, our blue po- folks from getting destroyed. It's really like having having when the hero is somebody from the outside that saves the people. That's oh, that's never really great. And instead, you want to show why are the people, what can they give to the person? Actually, dances wolves is so bad because you know they showed him their culture the whole time. But still, he had a little bit of that. I, I don't know. I don't know about dances the wolves. Anyway, in short, yes, this was a very important chapter that we put in the book. We thought a lot about it. We wrote it a couple of times. We focused heavily on what is practical, what we can share. And what will actually we can use from this that actually make our games our games better. Miles G says, I'm wrapping up a campaign soon to begin a new one. In gathering my thoughts for the next story, I wanted to define some player roles, not character, in this session zero. What are your thoughts on what character roles and tasks for players could be outside of their character? Currently, one player is taking all the notes on the story, corralling, corralling decisions from other players, etc. And I'd like to spread this responsibility beyond one person. This is, I, I put this in here because I was particularly interested in how the Dolmenwood Kickstarter did it. Dolmenwood had a good sample. I've talked about the Dolmenwood Kickstarter. I think it's right at the end of it at this recording i think it's ending pretty soon and the dolmenwood kickstarter one of the things that the dolmenwood setting thing is it had player roles and i was like oh player roles and we kind of have that in my group i've kind of done it but never like officially and the idea of the player roles is that you can look at the things that players should do and define who's going to do it who is your scribe who's going to take notes on what happens during the game so that people can refer back to the notes who's your quartermaster who's going to keep track of the loot who's going to know what what who's who what treasure came out and who took it who's keeping track of that that's a really good one who manages initiative could be one right who are the ones you know who's who's going to be the turn tracker that helps make sure that that initiative gets handled and then and can kind of keep track of who's up and who's on deck. That could be somebody. Who's the mapper? I think the mapper is one they have. When you're doing one where you're just explaining what's going on, you could have somebody that's actually drawing out a map. I tend not to do this. And I don't know, these days I don't see a lot of people doing it. But there is this talk that you could do it with some of the new old school games that you could have a mapper. So I really like the idea. I want to try it more. There's a little difficulty that, that sometimes the player who's responsible for a particular activity isn't there. And so you have to move the activity to somebody else. But I think it's really handy if you say like, hey, who's going to, who's the scribe for today? Who's going to like manage turn order? Who's going to manage the marching order? You could take all of these roles and kind of put them out and say, hey, 
Who wants to do this stuff? And it's great because it takes that burden off of you, right? That's some of the stuff that you, you're able to not do. I mean, having, having a player manage initiative is something I've been doing now for like 20 years, pretty close to it, 15 years. And boy, it's so much easier, right? It's just one thing I don't have to do anymore. That's really nice. I actually still track initiative when I'm playing online. But in person, I usually have a player do it. So I think a good thing to do here is to list what those roles are for your game. Because it could be different from game to game. And there might be times where it's like you want to manage it yourself. So you want to sit down and do it. You don't want to necessarily have your players do it. But anything where you're like, hey, I can, off, I, can, I can offshore this to the players. I can have the players go do this. Write those down and then ask your players, hey, who can take care of this stuff for me? Who would like to handle this? And you might do it each session. Maybe they switch it up. Who's going to be the quartermaster? Who's going to map stuff? Who's going to handle initiative? Who's going to be the scribe? You know, and then what are other things? What are other things that you want to do? So that's really cool. Check out the Dolmenwood Kickstarter if you want to see the roles that it defines because it has some really good ones in there. But yeah, really, really neat idea. Puka says, several times I've heard you mention that you like to give your players three or so options for upcoming sessions. They choose, and that helps you focus your prep time. When, how do you do that? Is it at the end of a session where instead of a cliffhanger, you describe three possibilities? Is it is it offline? Good question. I actually was just talking about this when I was prepping for my Shadow Dark game today. And the answer is, yeah, you want to do it close to the end, right? You want to you be close to the end. And what you might do, there's a few ways to do it. One is because I don't always end on a cliffhanger. Sometimes I end when they go back to town and they're getting ready to, to do whatever they're going to do in town. In that case, I will kind of interrupt things and say, okay, you still have some opportunity to spend some time in town, but I would like to know the general area where you're thinking of going next. These are the three options. Which one do you want to pick? I did that for my game on Friday, for example. But sometimes you you might even, before a cliffhanger, hey, if, if especially if the options are known, you, before a big battle, you say you, you do something cheeky like, assuming you all survive this next big battle, which one of the three paths after that do you think you guys are going to want to take, A, B, or C? And that's assuming they already know what those paths are, because you don't want to be showing them brand new paths in the middle of a fight, <laughs> right? You want to have a reasonable. So the answer is you drop it in when it, you know, when it best fits you and the group and the story that's going on. Ideally, you want to put it close to or at the end of a session you want to have you, you you definitely want to have some time for them to discuss it and make the choice ask for votes make sure everybody's at least willing to accept the vote on the assumption that you're going one particular path so leave yourself 10 15 minutes that can that can really help but yeah i, I really like this idea and i was also talking about the model that i really like which came from dragon of ice fire peak which is you can put three options in front of the players they pick one then the next time they pick another one and then the third one is dropped off the list and then you come up with three more so that way you you always sort of have this like three two three two option and you don't have to prep too much you 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 only have to prep the areas that they're going to and you're not wasting a lot of time trying to figure out things that they're not going to do i think that works that works really well but yeah the answer is you try to do it as close to the end of the session as you can if there's an opportunity to do it before a cliffhanger you can just jump cut and say hey after this happens what do you guys want to do next or if, if they're in town you could even say like hey we're going to be doing this next thing but then after that you guys are going to want to have a path here are the possible paths what one you want to take so you try to get it so that you're getting a general path of, of where you need to be prepping your game i think can can really help it's not always perfect either. It doesn't always work out, but that's the idea. 
Peter S. says, one of my preferred ideas for the Lazy DM is the strong start, but I usually play three-hour sessions, and for one shot, obligatory scenes are get the job, one exploration scene, one social interaction scene, and two combats. With these scenes, a strong start is difficult to fit in the time of the game. How do you make a strong start that fits your short game? So my sessions are three hours. So your sessions and my sessions are the same are the same duration. And I usually get a strong start in. One thing to keep in mind, a strong start doesn't always mean a battle. It's easy. The strong start battles are really easy and they're certainly strong, but that doesn't have to be it. It could instead be why the quest giver came up and what pushed the quest giver to come. You know, they come in covered in blood. Oh my God, dire wolves, right? I was, I just, I barely ran away from some dire wolves, but the weird thing is they could have killed me, but instead they dragged me here. I don't know why. So a strong start doesn't have to be a battle, which means a strong start doesn't have to take any longer than it would take you for any of your other scenes, like get the job. In fact, the strong start could be them getting the job, but instead of the, like, hey, you meet a guy in a bar and the guy offers you a job and you say yes, your strong start could be there you stand outside of the tower after having received this job from the quest, the weird guy with the weird hat in the bar, right? You can actually jump forward and then jump forward to the strong start after they've already made the choice, especially if there's only one choice that they're going to make. So I think that there's, I think it's important to remember that a strong start is not always a fight, which means it doesn't have to take a lot of time. The strong start should be part of the game. It's not a separate event. It's, it's the thing that drags them forward into the rest of the game. So it should be part of it. The one shot, the obligatory scenes, I'm going to pick on you just a little bit with like the formulaic nature of get the job, explore, social interaction, two combats. Building the situation out can be a little bit better than that. That sometimes you don't worry too much about how many battles, how much exploration, how much social interaction. You offer the opportunities for all of those things or you have the, the ingredients for all of those things for your game, but you don't necessarily know that that's exactly how it's going to play out. The only scene that I know is going to happen is a strong start. After that, I really don't know exactly what's going to happen I, I have idea of things that could happen but you know you, you definitely don't need to have like a set formula for it I, I would recommend i used to do set formulas and some people really like them the five room dungeon idea is a basically formulaic idea and people really love it so it could work for you but i think it's more interesting when we lay out all of our ingredients and we cook at the table and one of the things we do is we already know what the intro dish is going to be we know what the first thing they're going to eat is going to be and we have that already prepped and ready to go so i hope that helps the, the, the main thing is you can definitely fit strong starts into a three-hour session i do it every week but and and you don't need your, your, if you're, if your normal formulaic thing is you get the quest, then make the strong start them getting the quest, or maybe they've already gotten it. And the strong start is them beginning to actually accomplish the quest. That could be a, a way to kind of jump in, saves you some time, cuts 20, 30 minutes of them hemming and hawing about the quest and negotiating for the money. And instead gets them right to the, right to the, right to the meat of it. Topher M says, I'm running an episodic campaign for tweens at my local library. One thing they definitely love is getting treasure, but sometimes it's hard for me to justify why there is treasures lying around. Am I overthinking of it? Or are there lazy ways to justify the presence of magic items showing up? You're probably overthinking it. We overthink stuff all the time. You and I, all of us, we all overthink things. And we, I think when we put like players are generally not going to be like, well, that's weird. Why is there a plus one sword lying here on this tomb? Anybody could have come and grabbed it all this time. Like, oh, plus one sword. Woo. Right. They don't care. I wouldn't worry. Especially tweens. Like, come on. They're not, they're not, they're, they just want the sword. They don't really care. So probably you're overthinking about it, but there are lots of ways that you can come up with why treasure is a certain way that is, you know, and I would recommend here's a, here's a exercise for you. Exercise for all of you at home is you can try to try to think up 10 different ways that treasure could show up in your game. 
Try to you know, write down 10 ways that you think that people could find treasure in your game that would make sense given almost any location. Like it was preserved here by an old tomb. A, a, a bandit hid it here long ago and then was killed and never came back for it. A, a troll has dragged it off the dead bodies. Monsters have have, have corral, corralled it all together, but only because it's shiny. They don't actually know what it does. There could be lots and lots of reasons why treasure is piled up in a certain, in a certain area. You probably don't have to think about it too hard. Uh, if you're having trouble, you probably think about it too hard because it's usually not too hard to think about why treasure ended up. Now, the other thing is your treasure and your, you know, if you think of the 4E actually did a better job with treasure parcels where you had sort of per level, you could break everything up into parcels and then you could decide like what parcels would be given out at different times. You can move the parcels around. So move them to the location where they're more interesting. And you could say like, because they haven't gotten a lot of treasure in a lot of places, maybe the horde that is being held by the Ettercap, who's been collecting off the dead bodies of the people that his spiders have been killing, that's two or three treasure hoards. Now they get a big pile of treasure all at once because it makes more sense that the Ettercap would have been collecting it rather than it being strewn all about a dungeon. So think about what parcels of treasure you're giving out and maybe give out more than one at a time when it makes sense to give out, when you find that opportunity where you give it out. Generally, you're probably overthinking of it and that's not... I'm not bashing you. We all overthink lots of parts of our game. And whenever we ask ourselves, are we overthinking? The answer is probably, yeah, nobody cares. Let's just run the game, right? And find the treasure and put it there. And, you know, I mean, crying out loud, like video games we play, like Diablo, you know, or I'm playing Tiny Tina's Wonderland. And, you know, people explode with loot. Like they, 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 they die and like 15 guns come flying out of them or magical swords come out of this weird thing. There's so many different places you know, treasure chests that are just sitting in the middle of nowhere. We never even question it. And you never go like, why are there treasure chests lying in the middle of nowhere in the, in my Diablo three game? Yeah. It's Diablo three, Diablo four, Diablo four game. Nobody cares. So I, I bet you nobody worries about it. And instead, you know, but if you, if you want to, what you can do is kind of roll up the parcels, get them working and see, and see where things go. Friends. We have finished our Patreon Q&A for August. So on this coming Thursday on, on the Sly Flares Patreon, we will post a new Q&A for September. That means Friday morning is going to be a very busy morning for me. And we will start answering questions in future episodes of the show for, for the next set. So thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you like this show and you want more stuff like this, the best way to follow all of the work that I do is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator pdf for signing up and you get a weekly rpg related email sent to your inbox that includes a main article plus a whole bunch of links and tips for all of the other work that i do every week in the world of rpgs you can also support me directly on patreon you get tomb of the red headsman plus a whole bunch of other exclusive adventures you get the city of arches source book uncovered secrets volume one and two dedicated discord server and the monthly q a and you can pick up my books return of the lazy dungeon master lazy dm's workbook lazy dm's companion ruins of the grendel root Fantastic Lairs, Fantastic Adventures, Fantastic Locations. All of these are available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Links to all of those are in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.